Hi, I'm Kendall Brown, and you're listening to Still Small, a podcast exploring how to listen to your inner still small voice instead of staying still small within society's default rules. for you to listen to this podcast episode where I got to speak with my friend Rachel Mayer. She is the creator of a delightful sub stack called With Aloha and she is also the author of a moving memoir called Bowing to Light, A Mother's Journey Through Grief. A few notes, I forgot to plug in my microphone for the first 10 minutes of this interview, so sorry about that. And the movie that Rachel references that she can't remember the name of is called A Good Person. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I was thinking about this right when I was getting prepared to come on this call. I was like, Rachel is a big creative inspiration for me. Um, I didn't even know about Substack. And I saw on LinkedIn that you posted a Substack. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. I was intrigued because you're a creative and cool person that I didn't know, but I had worked with at one point in my life. I subscribed and your With Aloha postcards came and hit my inbox and it was such a delight. I love having things read aloud to me. I find it so soothing and it feels like a little treat to have someone take the time to read something aloud to you. So the fact that you write something beautiful and then you make it in such a digestible form so it it feels really fun and playful and it actually inspired me to reach out to you because that's how I found out about your book was from your Substack, and I read your book and then I was like okay I have to reach out to Rachel and just tell her how impactful she is all this to say thank you so much for putting your creative energy out into the world because you have no idea how it trickles down and motivates others and just it spreads its little community roots throughout well thank you for saying that that is very flattering. And and at the time that you reached out, I felt the same way where I was like, oh my God, really? Because you don't know. As a creative, you just put your work out there and you don't always hear back. It feels like it just goes into the ether. It could be very one-sided and not that you do it to get praise or to get feedback, but you wonder, is this doing anything? Is this pointless? But I guess that's the conundrum of the creative is you have to do it either way. If there's an audience or not, you're compelled to just produce, but it's even more touching when someone does say this reached me, this touched me in this way, especially with the email that you sent me that you're like, this inspired me. That's probably the most rewarding thing you can hear as a creative, because we, we need more creatives. We need more creativity in the world. So yes, let's plant those little roots and keep spreading it. Yeah, I know you've read The Artist's Way too, which has been a pivotal book for me, but do you face those demons of, is this self-absorbent to share my work when you say you feel compelled to do it? Because I don't know where I first internalized that view that, oh, your thoughts are not that important and you don't really need to spout off what you think about things or you don't have unique takes. And I'm really working to dismantle that and knowing that everything is a story built upon something you've heard somewhere that sparked something. You don't have to recreate the wheel entirely on your own. So I don't know if that 
ever crosses your mind or if you've always been comfortable sharing creatively. Yeah, that's something that is an evolution in an, an artist's life. And we are forced to share when we're younger. You know, you take an art class or you do a little project and you at least have to share it with a teacher. Oftentimes you do this thing and then you have to present it to the class. So I feel like we get forced to share at an early age where it might feel uncomfortable and we don't really have the support. It's not by our own doing. And then when you grow as an artist and then you're doing it for yourself and no one's telling you what to do, it's just coming from inside. It's this internal motivation. It comes a point where you're doing it because you're an artist and you have to do it. Um, And then there's that question, should I share this with people? Why am I doing this otherwise? And again, not to say that you do it for the audience, but I'm glad that we have museums, for example, you know, I'm glad that Mm -hmm. those artists didn't just paint in their attics and then die with the paintings and be buried with them. That inspires me. And so it just makes you start to see your own work in that light where you're like, well, it exists. So I may as well just put it out there and see what happens. I think it's a big jumping off point to get to that because I had a blog for 10 years that I didn't tell anyone about. It was online and I put it online because I wanted to keep myself accountable and wanted to make sure that I wrote and didn't feel like I was just writing in journals and then throwing them out or shelving them on a bookshelf and never looking at them again. So it just kept me accountable, but I would never share it with people, just my closest friends. Maybe I went through that transition in my life where I was looking at myself differently as not this worker bee that was striving and building a career because of personal crisis that I went through. And I was just compelled to write. And I did it in the safety of this community called the Creatives Workshop, which I don't think it exists anymore. Seth Godin had this platform called Kimbo and he put on these workshops and you go through 90 days with a cohort and you show up every day and you produce something and everyone is in this community together doing the same thing as you. So it feels way less intimidating to put yourself out there because we're all doing it and we're all supporting each other through it. And you want to contribute to other people's work, encourage them to keep going. And then they do the same to you. And it just is this beautiful community that fed itself but that was the thing. You had to show up and ship something every day. That's Seth Godin's thing. It doesn't matter if it's beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's polished. Just something out there. Once I got over that through that workshop in such a supportive environment, then after it was over, I was like, well, why don't I just keep this going in a larger community and the people that I know? And and yeah, I put it on LinkedIn and I don't even know people <laughs> read LinkedIn and that was, well, it's, it's out there. Who knows what will happen? And it's small, about 300 people that didn't even know that I wrote two years ago. So it's an evolution is the short answer. So many good things. I had no idea that when you did the Seth Godin thing, it was every day for like 90 or a hundred days. Yes. Every That's day. so cool. Oh, that I wrote that down because I just, I want to get it that level of commitment with a group. Um, I'm thinking about my next newsletter and I think I'm going to write about my relationship to alcohol, but it reminded me I did AA for two and a half years. And I was told when I first joined to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And that rigor is so intense. It just becomes a non-negotiable. You're just going to go and show up. And I love that ship it, whatever state it's in every day and just do that. Um, 
Did you do that? You did the 90 meetings in 90 days. days. It was crazy. Even when I was on vacation visiting my brother in Mississippi, I went to an AA meeting. It was, and I was 22 and I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I said I would commit to this. And so I'm doing it. I'm committing to it. And I ended up being in AA for two and a half years um, when I was 22 to 24. And that was a juicy time to be investigating my relationship with alcohol. I think committing to something for three months, and it's not just weekly, it's just every day that really is a force to build that muscle. You've made this mm-hmm. commitment to yourself. It set you up to go forward. You had, you were already in this practice. It can be really hard to one, continue that rigor, but also to do it alone. I'm now realizing how community-based writing can be. I'm dropping into these writing workshops and everyone just gives you feedback on a piece that you wrote. And I just had this solitary vision of what a writer was. It's just someone who writes in their beautiful sunlit office and then walks their dog (laughs) and they just live this solitary life and they write these fabulous novels. And that was my interpretation of what that looked like. And it's so fulfilling and affirming to have a group that you value their opinion and they're giving you feedback. Like you said, you don't do it for the follower count. It really doesn't matter, but it's really about the engagement that you can create. I think that's what storytelling is for. That's why I look to stories to see my experience reflected in a way that I can relate to or an experience that I don't have that I want to tap into. But it's really just, I see it so much as storytelling and building community via stories. It is. I mean, it's connection. And mm-hmm. even though the process of writing itself is very solitary, mm-hmm. we do it to connect more with ourselves. And then we share it to connect more with human beings or to allow other human beings to connect more with themselves. Like you're saying, if you see yourself reflected in someone else's story, well, it makes you feel less alone, or it makes you feel inspired to do something similar or any any range of things. But I think that's ultimately what it's about is storytelling is about connection. It's mm-hmm. about us trying to understand ourselves and understand each other, whether or not we're similar. And I've been, for whatever reason, I've just been binging on documentaries and podcasts about addiction lately. Beyond alcohol too, there's this documentary series, um, Peter Santonello, and he goes into different communities and just talks to people in these communities. He's embedded himself in the Hasidic Jewish community. He's He's gone to Appalachia and connected with people who actually live there and got a real sense from the people who live it every day, what it's like living in one of the most impoverished, maybe the most impoverished part of our country and all of the things that come along with that. There's so much addiction there. And I also, we've talked about this, I don't drink anymore either. And um, I feel like, I don't know if I would classify my relationship with alcohol as I'm an alcoholic, but I just know that it doesn't work for me. And so I just don't do it. But I listen to these podcasts and I watch these documentaries and I feel like it's such a different thing that these people are in the grips of something that I can like touch the edge of because I have somewhat of an understanding of what it's like to like lose control of yourself or lose yourself to something, whether it's work or whether it's alcohol, the grips are so deep in these people that are addicted to fentanyl or meth that I just want to understand. It's a way to, again, 
connect with my humanist, but then other people who have a different experience of life than I do. It allows us to like expand our compassion, expand our hearts, expand our understanding of the human condition when we allow ourselves to tap into stories like that. And that's the power of it. I don't have to have that direct experience to have an understanding of someone's life who is living that. And now when I pass someone on the street who's suffering in that way, I can feel more compassion than I could maybe previously. Not knowing about something, I feel like that's when humans tend to make judgments, is that we make up our own stories if we don't have the true story. What was drawing you to consuming addiction documentaries. They've always been interesting to me. I have an affinity towards them as someone who was in an addiction circle. But even before that, I have always found them super compelling. And mm -hmm. I think that everyone can relate to the patterns of addiction in some way. Having a vice or having a coping mechanism that isn't working for you, but you still go to. So I think that's yes. what draws me to it. And the vulnerability of someone sharing that experience because it's very sensitive and raw to share that. What yeah, it's it's real. I, I totally agree with you. What drew me to going down this rabbit hole recently of just really exploring more of that world, I watched a, a film. It was about she got into a car wreck and killed the person that was in the car with her. And it was her fiance's mm -hmm. sister. And then part of the family mm -hmm. blames her for the death. And she was also in pain. She got hurt. So then they put her on opioids and then she became addicted to them because A, they're addictive and B, she had this life that was in shambles that she was yeah. like, how do we even come back from that? So, but that was something that I watched because I was already consuming this, this content. And it started probably like a month and a half or two months ago when I started talking to this creative agency that I'm doing some copywriting work with and they got mm -hmm. a contract to do a rebranding for a San Francisco homelessness nonprofit. And so I was just reading up on everything having to do with homelessness because that was always near and dear to my heart. I left yeah. a, a corporate job when I first moved to San Francisco because I was walking by so many homeless people every day to get to my office. And I was just like, this is not, how can I be doing that when there's this going on? So I left and then I worked for a grassroots nonprofit and canvassing, which is <laughs> the worst job. This is, I was just not cut out for it. I was on the street corners asking people if they had a minute and for oh the homeless. And that. It's just not, not aligned with my personality at all, but that was the that was the job and I did the best that I could for as long as I could do it. And I felt I was contributing in some way. But so I wanted to brush up on the homelessness situation in San Francisco now because they don't live there anymore. And I, I don't mm -hmm. know what else. And then just reading about that and exploring more there, I stumbled across this. I think he's he's a photographer, but he does these really amazing, beautiful interviews with people, mostly on Skid Row. And he brings them into his studio and he just basically just asks them about their life and maybe one or two questions and then they just go and they tell you their whole story. And it's just so moving. Um, and his take was after doing a thousand of these interviews, he was homelessness is not the issue. There's so many, so many root causes to this. Mm whether it's mental health or whether it's addiction or it, it usually stems from trauma and all yeah. that. So I was really just trying to understand the homelessness epidemic yeah. 
And addiction is a big part of that. And it, I think it all comes down to, to really grossly simplify probably all human suffering, but especially the root causes of some, what can lead to homelessness, because homelessness is more of the symptom than the mm -hmm. problem, is a lack of love. People at some point in their life, when they're a child, they got the message that they weren't loved or, loved or they weren't wanted. And a lot of the times kids were abused or living in situations where they were neglected if they weren't, if they weren't being abused. And that leads to trauma that leads to children trying to cope as mm -hmm. adults with this trauma. And there you go. An addiction is, that's a warm blanket. That's something that you can, can numb out the, that, that hole inside. That's that lack of love. And so I feel that it all stems from all human suffering stems from this separation that we feel and not feeling love towards ourselves or love from another. And that's, that's suffering. That's, that's miserable, a miserable ex existence. So you're going to do whatever you can to try to numb that in whatever way you can. And that's mm -hmm. one, one form of it. Oh yeah. I was talking to a social worker for this volunteer position that I do. And he said something this week, like the opposite of addiction is connection, which I think mm. echoes your statement so much about a lack of love. And I just got chills you, when you said that. Yeah. It's just, it definitely struck me too. Have you read, I think you have, I think I'm friends with you on Goodreads, but Lost Connections by Johan Hari. He's a British author. Were you reading his newer book about disconnecting from technology? Oh, yes. Huh, yes. Yeah. So his first book is about loneliness and it's really, really good. And he basically makes that same argument that the mm opposite of all of these of human suffering is connection and love and so yeah that that makes a lot of sense to me and my question was one do you have the name of the person who does those portraits can you watch yeah. those interviews or were those yes. just his personal interviews and he makes a portrait who is that I need to know yes he's on YouTube his I okay. think his, his name is Mark Laeta I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but his handle on YouTube is the soft white underbelly, which that was the name of my old blog is the gleaming underbelly. And it's still, there's remnants of it in, in my social media profiles probably. So yeah, I just, that struck me. And I came up with that name because I was living in Oakland and I was going through a quarter life crisis and I was working three or four part-time jobs trying to just get by. And I was living in downtown Oakland, very gritty. There was no nature around me. I just felt very isolated and it felt like a very harsh environment. And this was coming into my adulthood. I'm like, is this just what adult life is? This is it. This is the rest of my life. And I was just so, so bummed. But walking downtown one day in between jobs, I would go to my cafe job, open the cafe in the morning. And then on my lunch break, I would walk a dog down the street for an extra 20 bucks. And then I would babysit at night and whatever, just little odd jobs to get by. But I was walking between jobs and I just happened to look up and there's just buildings surrounding me and not super tall buildings because it's Oakland, but still taller apartment apartment buildings. And I just see concrete all around me, but there's a little space of sky. And at the moment I look up, there's these birds flying by. They're probably just pigeons, but their underbellies were gleaming. They were glowing. And it was a nod to the silver lining. 
what's here's my crappy existence is what I was feeling at the time, but there's still always that. So mm-hmm. I don't know how he came up with the name, but it just I'm, immediately I was I felt a connection. Oh my gosh. I've always wanted to ask you where that name came from. I think that's your Spotify name when I go listen mm, yes. to the What's Aloha mm-hmm. playlist. And so thank you for sharing that story. And I feel there's definitely a connection there between the two of you artists. I want that to somehow manifest. That's so interesting. Have you read How to Do Nothing? No, but I saw that you're reading it on Goodreads right now. (laughs) Okay. This is me spying on you on Goodreads now. I'm glad it's mutual. I tried to read that book in September 2021. And I, it didn't really resonate, but it's about, and I'm now picking it up after doing nothing for a year, air quotes, in terms of capitalism and productivity. Mm-hmm. But, and that's essentially what the book gets at. And she is based in Oakland and she goes to a rose garden. And a big part of the beginning of the book is her fascination with birds and these crows that end up sitting on her balcony. So just hearing your Oakland story about seeing the gleaming underbelly of whatever birds those were just reminded me and made me feel a little sense of peace knowing that you both had slivers of Oakland and seeing beauty in a difficult situation. Um, Mm, Thank you for that. That's, and that sounds right up my alley, that book. So yeah, if if you recommend it, I'll put it on my, put it on my list. So yeah, what I find so interesting is I'm not a big rereader. I am very quick to make a judgment call and be like, not for me, but I read that book at a time when I, I, I only know this from Goodreads. I was reading it in September, 2021. So it was prime remote work prime Kendall just trying to read all the books at probably two times speed or listening to it on audiobook while doing something else and she was pretty I don't know esoteric and it's not how to do nothing and I the the title is a bit misleading I just wanted Mm. something to tell me how to unplug from my stress and really it's a much more much more of a thinker and she says has basically a disclosure in the beginning that this is not a manual this is a conversation this is an introduction to think differently and Mm -hmm. i think i read a few chapters and put it down and then my friend rachel who i interviewed on the last episode that's out told me to pick it up or said have you read it and i was oh i tried and it wasn't for me and i picked it or i think she was talking about her newer book which is no she was talking about how to do nothing but she has a new book how to stop time or saving time it's about the concept of time related but different and i picked up this book again and i feel like a completely different person picking Mm. it up which is so interesting because i know i am different but it's weird to pick up the same text and have it just hit so different chapter one i'm like oh i have to write this all down i have to marinate on this it's deep stuff that i just wasn't ready for and so you have Um. to i can appreciate that when i get frustrated sometimes if i'm trying to share a message that really resonates with me and someone's not receptive to it i can take that very personally because i when i see the light i want to tell everyone oh my gosh this thing i learned but everyone's journey is different even for myself you cannot force anything. It has to be organic. It has to be authentic. And so that was a very interesting lesson for me. And I'm, I'm reading it now and pondering it much more and it's resonating. So I would recommend it at least chapter one. I'm not <laughs> even that far into it, but it's, it's some good stuff. Well, I will take the recommendation because I find that with books too, is that if someone mentions something to me, even if I'm not ready for it right now, I know at some point 
I'll, it will hit me and I'll pull it off my bookshelf and it will be the exact right moment for me to read that book. So just trust that. I, I do that now, even with books that I started reading and was into, but then I get excited about another book. So I have nine books right now. I'm a serial non-monogamous book person. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, and, and sometimes I'm not in the mood for mm -hmm. the subject matter. So I like to have that variety too, but I can get wrapped up in, especially being on Goodreads and I'm tracking my progress on what I've read and I could be, oh, I've read so much and it feels like I'm not finishing any books. I'm not making any quote unquote progress because I haven't checked anything off because I'm dispersing my reading across nine different books. But I started to make peace with that more and more. And because I will put a book down after I'm 40% of the way through with it and start another book. And then randomly one day, three months after not reading it at all, I'll pick it up and the exact page I left off on is the message I need to hear at that moment, at that day. And, and it wouldn't have made sense to me three months ago. So there's a, a trust in the timing of things. And if something comes across your awareness, I just believe, notice it, pay attention. And it's meant for you, some version of you at some point, even if it's not right now. You have such a level of self-trust that I've always envied but admired at the same time and I know it's something that you've cultivated and it didn't happen overnight so that is comforting to me but you're definitely one of those people who just I feel can really trust timing whereas I like to rest things I don't want to wait for something to come to me or be receptive I'm just like I'm gonna muscle through this time and it's never a good time honestly to do it that way so it's good to hear little glimmers of how you just relinquish control, but trust yourself at the same time, because it can feel like both relinquishing control, but also trusting. That's interesting. Yeah. Say yeah. more about that. That's, that's a really interesting statement and it rings true to me. Interesting. Cause I tend to paint myself in a pretty structured, limited view. I'm like, no, Rachel, you are loose and trusting and ethereal, whereas I am a grasping climber type person, which is just a generalization. But I think I've always felt if I don't take matters into my own hands, I won't get what I need, which, wow, saying that feels, whoa, you got to unpack that. <laughs> Why did you feel you weren't going to get your needs met if you didn't do it yourself anyway? So I think especially what comes to mind there is I went to this big school where no one was really looking out for me. It was just sink or swim. You're just a number. You need to go get the internships. You need to go get the job or else you will be left behind. And so I think Goodreads can be an example of the way that our society has truncated things into metrics. And that's mm -hmm. something I'm currently mm -hmm. very obsessed with. That concept of just like taking these deep, mushy things that can't be quantified and just flattening them. Health and fitness, we're just tracking and tracking and tracking. And it strips a 3D thing and totally just takes all of its, not power, but it just, it just again, flattens the experience. And I asked someone who I admire recently, are you on Goodreads? Because I just wanted to know what she was reading. And she was like, no, that made me feel weird about my reading and competitive. And I was like, oh yeah, that is what it does. But I thought that was good. I read 50 books last year and I've been trying to get to 50 and I got there. Yes. And I think that's just who I was a year ago or what was important to me. And now I'm not as worried about my Goodreads count. I do have a little angst of like, you didn't read very many, you didn't finish very many books in July. 
but I just wasn't in that space. It's not a value judgment, mm-hmm. how much you read. It's not a barometer of intelligence, even though I definitely feel good when I can say I've read X books in this amount of time. Letting go of those metrics that I hold on to to feel validated is a process. It is. And I mean, that's what we're taught. So just to give yourself and all of us a little grace that we learn to judge ourselves that way from the school system and Mm -hmm. from everything else in society. You're pointing out our watches now aren't just watches that tell us time. They track how good are we at sleeping and how many Mm -hmm. steps do we get in? How good are we at sleeping? It's ridiculous. But, and, and that also assumes that we can measure human beings as if we are consistent levels don't go up or down. It's not going to be an A plus day every day. You're not going to get good sleep every night. We're subject to the environment. What you're talking about to me is this hyper-masculinization of life where Mm -hmm. we need to track it to feel we can control it and to see how we measure up and to make sure we're taking the right actions and And it's all about us and what we're doing and how good are we doing what we're doing and us having control. That's the unhealthy masculine. Mm -hmm. And then the feminine way is more looking at nature and realizing there is a season for everything and there is perfect timing for everything and it will all get done, but it doesn't all get done in the same way right now. There is a process. It's an ongoing thing. And time is not linear, whereas the masculine wants time to be linear. And then the feminine is more, everything is a circle. Everything is a spiral. It comes back around. And there's a time for off as there's a time for on. There's a time for planting as there's a time for growing and then harvesting. And and we ignore that in our society. And I think you're aware of that. And you are deprogramming yourself from the way that we've all been taught in our society that is obsessed with masculinizing everything in this way, measuring everything in this way. And as women, it's also strange that we have to reconcile that we've subscribed to this thing that's unnatural for our beings. That's not really how we were made. And I know I'm not talking about gender and all of that aside is everyone has masculine and feminine in them. And ideally we're all balanced and whole, but we are a default of the feminine and Mm -hmm. we're subscribing to this other version of the masculine. That's not good for us or anybody and completely ignoring our own nature. Yeah. I feel all of these metrics and everything are so dehumanizing. And when you talk about the cyclicality and the seasonal aspects of it, it really reminds me that we're animals. And I think we've forgotten that. Like, it's so silly when we go outside and we're like, oh, the sun, it feels so nice. And it's like, yeah, because we're animals that need the sun. I just think we are just trying to be robots and we're not robots. And that's where we're just totally burning out and crashing because we're just, oh, optimize, optimize, optimize. And it's just burning everyone out and running us all into the ground. And it's, I, and now we're just too far gone that we're, how do we rebuild from here? It just feels hard to like 
okay, let's all tap into feminine. Cause I've been trying to tell my husband when he's mad at himself for having a bad day. You said it's not going to always be an A plus day. It ebbs and flows. You're just a person and there's factors and you're a product of your environment. And it's not a moral judgment on who you are if you didn't produce today, whatever that may be. And so I just want everyone to lean into that energy. And I just don't even know where do we, how do we come back from here? Can you fix it all, Rachel? Just (laughs) give me the answer. (laughs) Well, I think you said it earlier that everyone is on their own journey. And it's, yes. I think that's how we do it is that one by one, we mm-hmm. come to terms with this, how, wh- however it looks in our lives and whatever systems we have been subject to without our consent from an early age and then grew up in and then just unconsciously subscribed to because we didn't know there was anything else. And now becoming conscious human beings is, is yeah. the way is, and that's, and that's a process and mm-hmm. That's one of discovery. And I think um, it will look different for everyone. But just to start that journey for yourself, whatever it looks like is you're so you're doing it. (laughs) That's it is you're doing it. And by you talking about it, maybe other people can become more aware and start doing it for themselves. And I think it's that's how anything gets done is one by one. It's usually not a big, huge event a tsunami of people waking up one day and being, Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this anymore. Although I say that, and then as soon as the words left my mouth, it's, but look at what the pandemic did. There's so many people who are now opting out of corporate America because it woke us up to, well, this is really unnatural to commute to an office for X number of hours a day and to spend most of our lives that way and all the stress Mm -hmm. that it induces and and maybe I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back to the office. Oh, and, and maybe I don't want to go back to corporate America either. Maybe I don't want that life. And maybe I'm opting for a simpler version of that. But it looks different for everyone, like I said, and, and everyone in their own time too. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a latent processor. I knew some, everyone knew something crazy was happening during COVID, but I could not process in the real time. And now I'm only now starting to absorb some of the things on paper. Yes. Oh, people don't want to go back into the office, things like that. But just the way my life was structured, I'm just slowly starting to dismantle those pieces. And yeah, I've always been that way. I'm not very good at if I'm having an altercation or anything, I can't really process in the moment. I have to go home and I have to marinate on it and think about it. And, oh, that did upset me. But in the truly, if you ask me in the moment, I'd be like, I'm fine. It's hard for me to tap into those things. I have to Mm -hmm. marinate on all the cyclicality of things and hyper-masculinization. That's not a casual (laughs) word you just throw around. I don't even know if that's a word, to be fair. (laughs) I think it is. And it's a challenging word. And so, yeah, it's just it's hard to undo all of those things and to constantly be on and you have to take time to crawl back into your shell is what I'm trying to say is that I need, Mm. I need that space to really know how I feel about something. If you're just thrown into something your whole life and you're just treading water and you're just going along. I started this conversation by asking if you're punctual because you are very punctual (laughs) to me, um, having worked with you, you're very professional and I equate those two as synonyms, which they're not punctuality and professional, but in the corporate hyper masculine word, be on time, get in, get out, be efficient, don't waste time. And so it was just funny that that was the 
intro question. I knew we were going to get into yeah. masculine and feminine <laughs> because that's a big part of everything we talk about. And it's just, it's at the forefront of mm. a lot of the work that you and I are both doing, but it's just interesting. It, it's a through line a little bit because you mentioned that you were working this corporate job and then you, you went straight to grassroots canvassing. And so to me, that is ping ponging between the two energies. And mm -hmm. I feel that I've talked to you about how I just want to drop out of the corporate world and do nonprofit work and feel I'm making a difference. And I think you said that when you were talking about even though the role was not fit for who you are as a person, because I don't think there are a lot of people that can canvas and not feel their soul is being crushed just because of the nature of that role. But when you did pivot from your corporate job to that work, what was behind that? And then what? how did you pivot again? Because I met you and you were ascending. You were just climbing that corporate ladder and we can talk about where you are now if you're open to it. Um, yeah. But that was a lot of build up to a question of how do you balance those in your past and where are you now? Yeah. Wow. That <laughs> is such a, let's unpack that, Kendall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the way that you put it, I didn't realize that I have this pattern of swinging hard one way and then the other. Maybe it's because I'm a Libra. So it's, I want balance. It's like, whoa, went too far in that way. Well, to balance it out, I have to go too far in this direction. But <laughs> what caused that leaving the corporate world, which at the time I was, I think I was 23 and I was working for Harper One, which is a spiritual imprint of Harper Collins. It's their label that was mm -hmm. spiritual. And I was doing PR, which was basically putting packages together, printing stuff, typing up a PR letter, and then having an editor edit it, and then just printing up thousands of copies and mailing them out. I was basically mailing out a bunch of stuff to shows. Uh, and I was like, well, I get to work with books. And that was my idealistic thing coming into it. And it's spirituality. So it's good. It's helping people, helping the world. And I was obsessed with helping people back then. I was a sociology major and I was first a writing major. So maybe I'll just go back. I was first a writing major. And then I had that thought that you referenced earlier. Of, that is so self-indulgent. I, mm. Why would I do that? Um, and I switched to sociology because that's the opposite of self-indulgent is understanding other people. It's not about you at all and helping out there. So I graduated in 2006 and then I moved to California and I did a bunch of odd jobs. And then I got this job as a PR assistant at the book publisher. And then both of my grandmothers that I had grown up with, I grew up with three grandparents. One grandfather died before I was born. So I always had three grandparents. Both of my grandmothers within a month of each other died suddenly. Oh my gosh. And so I was went back to the East Coast because we knew that my Nana, my mom's mom was dying. So I went back when we realized she didn't have long to live. She was in hospice and I spent time with her and I got to say my goodbyes. And then they're like, well, we don't know how long it will be. So just go back to California. And then, and I did, and she died. So I flew back and then went back to California. And then my other grandmother, a month after my Nana died, my dad's mother died suddenly. She was doing laundry in the basement of her building and she just dropped dead and- oh. I know. And it turned out that she had maybe they thought maybe she had had a heart attack and she didn't realize it. And 
so the damage that was caused just festered and it, and Mm. it caused her other organs to shut down. So she didn't actually, her heart was actually pumping fine, but it was more of the other organs that the heart attack affected shut down. So I wasn't home for that, but I flew back again. And so I was home, I was back in Pennsylvania three times in the course of two months. And I was just questioning, why am I even out in California? This is ridiculous. I should be with my family. And why am I working this this stupid job where I knew people would be in the same position for years and not get promoted? And there was there was nothing there for me. And I was, this seems senseless when this is my, quote, one in wild and precious life. Um, and so it just put everything into perspective for me. And then when I went back to California, I, I quit that job and I was like, well, the homeless issue is something that I really care about. So I'm going to just embed myself in that. Did that for a few months and then the recession happened. And so all jobs were off the table, especially nonprofits. And I was Mm -hmm. desperately trying to get back into nonprofit work and just no one was hiring. And then even a quote unquote normal job or corporate job, no one was hiring. So then I just started working in cafe and walking dogs and nannying and doing commercials, anything I could do that was pay the bills. Mm-hmm. It was survival mode. That was the first time that I left corporate America. And then mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to climb the ladder. I was just trying to pay my bills. I made $30,000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, that was a big deal for me at that time because the year before I made $15,000. So in San Francisco. I think that really helps paint a picture because when I look back on my career, there are moments where I left corporate. Even from the beginning, I knew it was wrong. And but I just would leave and then be like, well, I gotta go back. There's no choice. So I really like hearing the little threads. I didn't even see that I flipped there, but now I have distance from it and I could see that. That first of all is so hard losing two of your beloved grandparents so close together. That is just a traumatic experience losing two pivotal people in your life. So I just want to say, I'm sorry that that happened. And especially when you're young and you're working your first job and then you're, you're having this tension of seeing your family far away and also trying to build your own path and then being torn about what am I even doing here? So when you decided to stay in Oakland, did you feel tension? Did it feel I think you put a little bit of pressure on yourself that it's selfish, but it is your life. And you have always felt called to live in San Francisco or not always. When you first visited, you had a very instinctual gut moment. And so did you question that or how did you navigate where you wanted to live in the beginning when it's not ultimately very clear that this is where you belong? Yeah, it was It was hard. I mean, I felt a guilt for sure. And I think my family made me feel guilty. And that's one of the structures that I I would say I am dismantling for myself is just my family's hold on me. My family is amazing. I love them so much. And we're all really close. And for me, that was a problem because I have an independent spirit. And I Mm -hmm. felt I didn't even know who I was. Mm Mm-hmm because all I was, was a product of my family. And you do things a certain way. You go to church every Sunday and we believe certain things and we hang out with each other all the time. My, my parents live right next door to my mom's brother and his wife and their six children. And oh my gosh, another aunt two blocks away. Everyone is so deeply rooted there. And it's such a, 
a network and a web where now when I go back there, it's I can feel it viscerally where I'm like, I can't breathe. It feels mm. so everyone's on top of each other and it feels so cluttered, just the space. There's no space. And mm. I remember that as a child, stealing off to my bedroom and just locking the door, locking myself in there and just wanting to be by myself and play by myself or just, I don't even know, just think. Mm-hmm. And it would constantly, but there, I grew up in a family of four children. So there's, there's always kids around. There's always a parent having you do a chore or something like that, or I just felt like I didn't have any time to myself. So I got the heck out of there as soon as I could. And then when I discovered California, like you said, I was like, oh my God, this place feels like home to me. I, I've got to move here. And then I did. And then my dad made a comment that he said, he took it so personally. You couldn't get far enough away from our families. That's by then by moving to the farthest West Point. And then I moved to Hawaii. So, but I think I absorbed that guilt. I definitely internalized that. And I knew, yeah, no one leaves here. Mm-hmm. That's against our family. We've been here for six generations. And we had a few relatives that would that moved to Philly, which is two hours from my hometown, or to New York, which is two hours from my hometown. But that's it. So I just knew something you didn't do. So it was really hard for me to maintain. And yet there was something in me that was just, I need to be here. And I don't know why, but I just need to do it. So, but it was like a split of myself as I know myself and Mm. trying to become an adult and my own person. Mm -hmm. And then myself as in the context of my family and as my family knows myself and they're like, why would Rachel do that? That's so out of character or whatever. They don't say that anymore. It's totally in my character. They've come to realize, but it was just doing what was expected of me. And that was hard to, to hold that when everything externally is saying, don't do that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you didn't even know yourself when you say it was out of character because you didn't even have a chance to explore who you were. And it's so interesting the way we don't really have the space to explore who we are. I don't know how to set that up, but I do feel very much that we're just always doing something and we're never actually reflecting. We just don't have Mm. that space built into our systems. And all I want is for my parents to say that they're proud of me and they think that I'm a good person. And I think they think they've said that and that I know that, but gosh, to hear it, I would just love to hear it because it just, I know they love me, but honestly, sometimes I'm just, are they proud of me? Do they think I'm a good person? I really sometimes don't know. And so when you have some pushback, especially your dad saying it's hurtful, it hurt him that you moved far away. And that's hard to balance because you don't want to hurt your family, but you have to do this for yourself. Quitting my job, it changed where I fall in society and just how people view me and how I view myself. And I hate that I need the reassurance of my parents being like, you're a good person, regardless of your employment status. And I'm not trying to be angry with them, but it just, it you hold your parents in, to such high esteem. You want them to think highly of you. And you don't really, at least I haven't really gotten past that wanting of just them to validate me. And so it can be very hard speaking for myself, but hearing where you were at to move away and just do something for yourself and know that it's not selfish. It's just... Mm your, it's your life. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's your life. And I think that's also a process. It's an evolution where I didn't used to feel that way. And I feel like I'm in the last few years, I'm just starting to understand the influence that my parents have had on me for better and, and in some cases for worse and decoupling that from my path forward. Because I think you, for most of my career, when I was doing that climbing, when I got where we met at Healthline and when I got that job and then just threw myself into to prove myself, my worth to myself and to my parents just wanted them to be proud of me. Basically, I'm doing the right thing. I have a good job and it has good health insurance and benefits and and then realizing they didn't really care. I don't have the parents that ever really cared about that stuff to the point where they, at points I wished that they pushed me more than they did. Mm-hmm. They always had the laissez-faire. We just want you to be happy with this very strong undercurrent of expectations of what <laughs> that meant. <laughs> but Ooh, yeah, but but no career type stuff. They're just mm-hmm. like, okay if that's what you want to do, because career was never a big thing for either of them. I think that's mm-hmm. why it wasn't in our family vernacular to care that much about that. It is more about being a good person, being family oriented, looking after each other, that thing. So. Yeah, I was chasing this thing. Now looking back on it, all those years that I was climbing the corporate ladder, ultimately it came down to I just wanted my dad to be proud of me, primarily. I knew my mom, I know my mom unconditionally loves me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because she's my mom, even though I don't take that for granted because I know that's not the case for everyone. But for my dad, his love was always harder to win. And so it became a challenge. And it's, well, maybe... If I do this, if I do the impossible and move out to California and make a name for myself and prove myself and my value to society, maybe he'll respect me and be proud of me then. Do you feel like you got your moment? No, (laughs) no, No, it never comes. (laughs) No, I mean, that's the realization. That's the moment, the realization that that was in it. And then Mm -hmm. you're like, well, and he never put that on me. I put that on myself. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's important to highlight because I know my parents are going to listen to this and be like, we never did this to yeah. you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and it's true. I did this for me. This was never something that was overtly said. And we've been alluding to the fact that I do this for me, but probably just because of all the messaging I've absorbed in my lifetime, what even is for me? So it feels equally spicy to live up to your own expectations and these unrealistic expectations that you made up for yourself to please someone else. And it's just, how did we get here? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of the masculine and feminine too, where we internalize our parents who are our first models of the masculine and the feminine in those roles and how they play them in our lives. And then we become adults and We think that we're telling ourselves something, but if you really stopped and listened to the voice, most likely it's not your voice that's telling you the thing that's harsh or that's punishing. It's a parent's voice. That's the origin of it. And it's up to us. You said it's not our parents. This is just naturally what happens with human beings. It's not their fault. They didn't do this intentionally, but we're impressionable as children and, and we take that stuff in, we internalize it. And then as adults, I think that's, that's our hero's journey or our heroine's journey is to Mm -hmm. unpack that and to make that realization and to decouple ourselves, find our own true voice, which 
to bring it back to writing and creativity, mm-hmm. that that's all part of the process. It's all this process of getting connected with who we truly are, which is probably a lifelong process. And there's no, there's no neat endpoint there. The masculine wants there to be the measure. You could do all the measuring you want. And you might see from one year to the next, like you did with the book. Oh, wow. I'm a different person now mm-hmm. than when I started reading this book a year ago and put it down. So that's rewarding, but we don't need to be obsessively measuring that all the time or else you will never make that progress. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought us back to writing because art is self-discovery. And that's what I'm really seeing from the artist's way of just mm. whatever your method, it's your canvas of how you're going to work it out and how you're going to figure out who you are. And so I really do Again, I just want to proselytize and tell everyone, read the artist's way. Everyone's an artist. And because it doesn't, I still don't identify as an artist. I was in an art store yesterday with my friend and the owner of the art store was like, are you an artist? And I was like, (laughs) I was like, she is because my friend like works in paint and she was like, she's a writer. Uh, You know, I just still struggle seeing it as an artistic endeavor, but it is. And like we've said, it's, it's sharing stories and it doesn't have to look a certain way to be art. And that's something I've I've struggled with of calling myself a writer, um, mm. but definitely calling myself an artist feels hard. But if you don't have that mode of expression that you've cultivated in some way, I think it can be really hard to actually figure out who you are. I don't want to say you have to be an artist to understand yourself because I don't think that's true, but I do think that art teases it out in some way. Mm. Yeah. For me personally, it's, revolutionized the way that I've thought about myself and understand my life and understand Mm. myself in the context of today. And all of that is through writing. And I know it's different for everyone. And But life is art. So that's, I think Mm -hmm. everyone really is an artist. And that's Mm -hmm. why you feel, I need to tell everyone about the artist's way, because that's the realization with the artist's way is everyone is an artist. There's no Again, I think it's the masculine likes to label everything into nice, neat little boxes. And then you have a very clear picture of exactly what that is and exactly what that's not. Yes, the labels. Then it it can limit us because you're Mm -hmm. like, well, an artist looks like this and acts like this. And, you know, an artist paints. They don't write. That's something else. It's a writer. And they live in a little sunlit room and (laughs) spend Mm -hmm. all their time by themselves you were saying earlier yeah um but I think that's it's just it's human expression and Mm -hmm. whether it's dance or it's singing or it's even the way that you organize your closet Mm -hmm. that is an expression of who you are and it's an expression of life and emotions and being human and I think that's the beauty of it is you can look any way that it looks and you can't not be an artist and be alive, basically. Mm-hmm. Life is creativity is what I'm taking from that. Like you just said, every person expresses themselves in such subtle and unique ways. Honestly, I think everyone is interesting. You just have to ask the right questions. And I firmly mm-hmm. believe that. I talked to my new friends that I've met in Bend and I find out something so interesting and inspiring about them. Every time I talk to them, oh my gosh, your life could be a movie. And a nothing cataclysmically interesting has happened to me, but I'm like, oh, I definitely need to write a book of essays. That's what I have to do. And because I just think everyone has their own unique way of going through the world and things happen to them. And I struggle with writing because I write personal essays. And so to me, there's not a lot of space between 
me and the art, which is true mm-hmm. for a lot of people in general. It's very personal, but you, it's not a persona. I'm not writing a novel. And so I remember my husband said, like, no one wants to read your diary. And I was like, first of all, I would read any of my friends' diaries. And I love <laughs> memoir. So maybe people do want to read my diary. And But that's where I did feel super defensive about, oh, is this self-indulgent? Is this just mm. me sharing, feeling the need to share my diary? Which, who knows, maybe it is. But I just have to walk that back and be like, you know, everyone is interesting. And you don't have to have lived in a million different countries or what have you to have lived an interesting life. And so I think it definitely manifests in so many different creative ways. Mm-hmm. And you're saying we were talking about earlier is seeing yourself in someone else's story is it's about the connection. So yes. it, it it's okay if not everyone had the exact same experience as you, but they mm-hmm. might see a glimmer of themselves in your writing And there's beauty in that. And it creates a sense of connection between the people and between yourself and your self-understanding. Totally. Yeah. And I love that you keep bringing it back to that of the connection because we talked about addiction. We talked about loneliness. And that's truly why we turn to all these avenues of art, of expression. It's just so we can process this wild life experience because we're all having a different experience, but it's all happening at the same time. And we're all taking in information and it can feel really isolating. Just again, bringing it back to not working a corporate job, that's felt really isolating. And so I've been looking to creatives who are sharing on this path. And I felt so empowered. I've never been on Twitter and it's probably the worst time to try to join, but (laughs) I'm now on Twitter for the first time ever. And it's terrible because Elon Musk has renamed it X or whatever, but I'm tweeting at these people who've inspired me and they're messaging me right back. And it's just so life affirming. Just like you said, the way, the way this connection that right now happened was because you put something out there totally resonated with me and I felt compelled to tell you that and so it's just the most fabulous feedback loop because now I have my little blog and people are reaching out to me and I'm just like that's the whole reason I did it because so many people have done that for me and it's just like I'm just gonna name the uncomfortable experiences because that's why I look to literature or Mm. what have you seeing that reflected back is so affirming when you're feeling like is anyone having this experience yes People are. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And every little bit helps. So Mm -hmm. you're helping to ease suffering a little bit for somebody and those little seeds you're talking about earlier that who knows where the people that you affect, they're going on and then they're affecting other people. And I, I believe that that's how things truly happen is just one domino next over the other, next over the other, next over the other. Yeah. And I forget what you were talking about, but you were talking about how it's a web. And I really liked that. That's what I was trying to say earlier when I was describing the roots of your creativity. And it's just the interconnectedness of it all and how you can trace it back. It's just, I love piecing things back when you're like, how did I get to this creator? What led me to this article? Even when you said, oh, I'm into addiction memoirs, hearing how you got there. I love that. And I can't always recreate how I ended up somewhere. Sometimes you're in a rabbit hole, but just hearing how (laughs) the work that you're willing or wanting to engage with now led you to this research. And I don't know, it just shows a little bit about you and your thoughts and where your energy is focused. I like hearing it. Yeah. And, And that's something that I think now that I'm 
not working a traditional job and I don't have a nine to five and it's not structured like that, I've realized that in order to do my best work, I really need that freedom and the space to go down rabbit holes for Mm -hmm. as long as it takes and not have to explain why this will make sense or convince someone that this will result in a better product or something. Mm -hmm. But I know that that's true for myself. It's I need to consume in this just following the energy. I need Mm -hmm. the energy is telling me that there there's there's energy behind this right now. And I'm just going to follow it until there's no more energy behind it. And that's how I'm living my life right now. And it's taking me down some really interesting roads that I never would have guessed a year ago or a month ago even. But I'm just, okay, well, who am I to say where this is going or why and just let it happen. And then when it doesn't need to happen anymore, it won't. And just Mm -hmm. trust it. That's been my experience at least. So that's, I fall back on, well, when I've done this in the past, here's been the result. And so I can trust that it will be something similar if I do, if I choose to continue doing that. How wonderful to be able to follow the energy wherever you want to go. And you've said trust creates peace. And that just Mm. never really left me. It's just so hard to embody, but it's, I just, I just keep returning to it because it's just, you have to trust yourself to go on this journey, to trust yourself, to follow the energy and know that it's going to pan out for you in a way that is just right. And you don't have to explain it to anyone because it's, when you were saying making it about a better product, I was like, you're the product, you know, like really <laughs> yeah, your like, life, exactly. your life is the product. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I get so wrapped up and like, I got to build something or whatever I tell myself about how I have to make myself feel meaningful. And this woman said, you'll invest in the stock market, but the best investment you can make is in yourself. Mm. that just really hit me because I'll dump money into a stock and I'll be like, yes, that's prudent. That's what I should do. But how can I trust like service now more than I trust myself? Why? At least for me, that goes back to money, which is my own personal baggage, but you can take it beyond money and just look at it. Like you are your best investment. Yeah. Follow that, nurture that. You're the best authority on your life too. Mm -hmm. That's something that we all learn from an early age is to give our power away to adults. They know more than I do. They're in charge to my teacher, the school system that I just go from class to class where they tell me to. And we're we're taught to give our power away and our authority. And like someone always knows better or a doctor. Yes. Yes. Um, But it's, it's your body. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's your life. We were saying earlier and no one knows it better than you do. Someone might be an expert in a subject matter, but you're the expert on the subject matter that is you and your life. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, then try to become the expert on that. That's what this <laughs> discovery is about. Is mm-hmm. I'm trying to become the expert on me and mm-hmm. myself. And that's all I can, that's all I can tell you. And it's still a work in progress. And I, I will constantly be finding ways to graduate to the next level of self-understanding so that I can show up for people authentically and I can live the life that I was given to live in the way I was meant to live it. And I don't know what that is ahead of time. It's in the unfolding that the answers become apparent. So there's nothing you can do but live and experience it. And that's what we're doing anyway, but we're not experiencing it. You said, Mm -hmm. again, back to the artist way of, I can't be an artist. How old I'll be if I start 
today, tomorrow, like it's the same age you'll be if you don't. Like life is happening to you regardless. Like life is going to go on. And I read some book and it was like, stop being a passive participant in your own life. And that really kicked it into gear for me of when you're making a decision that's really not fully aligned. Okay, well, that's just me sidelining my own self in my own life. Why? Why would I do that? I get why there's a lot of pressure, but it's, it's your life and you're the expert on it. Yeah, taking that back, taking the responsibility and the power Mm. back into not from anyone because I really don't like victimizing myself Mm -hmm. in any way but just it's just the reality of it we grew up a certain way you are born into families and into systems and then you have a life to reconcile after you graduate from those organizations Mm -hmm. you don't have to be subject to it you can choose to participate in it or not and Mm -hmm. it's your responsibility to choose and of course not choosing is also a choice as they say right responsibility is key because it's easier or understandable to wallow and blame. And you can do that and you're not wrong a lot of the time, but that will only get you so far. You said you've been dealt a deck of cards and it's your responsibility to make the most out of what you were given. And so I can spend time in doomsday of why is life so unfair? And it's just, that's not going to change anything. And you've helped me see that too. When I've played the game of, oh, but people have it worse. What does that do for anyone if you don't just make the most of the life that you were handed and you don't have to feel constantly bad about it, of the unfairness. It's unfair in all sorts of different ways, but you do have to take responsibility for how you're going to live your life at some point. (laughs) The point is now. (laughs) Yeah. I just... A little anecdote that this discussion reminded me of the other night. So we have an Airbnb and my husband, Kevin, really manages it. We started managing it together. And then when I went back to corporate, then I was like, I need to do this full time. So after he took it over, it's been his thing and he'll communicate with all the guests. But the other night I made dinner and he wasn't in the house. So I texted him, hey, dinner's ready. And he called me and was like, there's a cat with its head stuck in a tin can out here. The guests, the Airbnb guests just stumbled upon it when they were pulling into the driveway and I'm going to go help. And I was like, what? So I ran out the door and there they are. They caught the cat. They had a blanket with them or a towel and they managed to pin the cat down. And so they were, they didn't want to pull the can though, because Mm -hmm. the can is serrated on the the inside and they didn't know if the top was also in there with it. So they didn't want to cut his face. Mm -hmm. And so Kevin and I ran back up and we scoured our tool shed and we found three different sizes of clippers, tin Mm -hmm. clippers that would work. And we ran back with it. And the guy who was holding the blanket, he was like, Oh, perfect. This size would be perfect. I think I can fit this size in between his head and the can and he starts cutting it and the cat's like squirming and everyone's like holding the cat down and like, we're trying to help you. It's okay. And he bends back the tin so that the cat can breathe a little bit. And then he cuts more and he keeps bending it back. And it's an Australian couple too. So I just assume that they deal with gnarly stuff on the regular, <laughs> right? They've probably done this to a snake before. And like, so, so I felt confident that we were doing the right thing, but, but we didn't know when they first saw it, the cat was just following around with this can on its head. And then they're like, well, if we can trap him, then we can actually get it off the head, but we have to trap him. So there was a process, a thought process of, we know what the, we want the end result to be. We have to help this cat. 
And we did it and we freed the cat and he immediately ran away and hopped away. He was so happy. It seemed he was doing bunny hops down the road and we're high-fiving and hugging and just, oh, thank God that that turned out much better than it could have. Part of me, I was first annoyed. I made dinner and now it's going to be cold. We have to go deal with this thing. And then I saw the cat and I was like, oh my God, this poor cat. And then the woman's like, I looked it up and it seems this happens quite frequently. Cats will be eating out of a can, especially stray cats. And then they go too far and then they get their head stuck. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, that's common. And then the old me, I think, would be like, that's so unfair. That is not right. A, that there's so many stray cats in the world that are just hungry and trying to find a bite to eat. B, that this cat is in our yard and we're having to deal with this and nothing is fair about this. And I don't want this cat to suffer but there's no room for that when you're actually in the experience. It's 100% we need to help this cat. And I think that's what life is. is life mm -hmm. either requires you to act or to listen. I feel those are the two. And one is more masculine and one is more feminine, is the feminine. Mm -hmm. And there's a time and a place for each of them. But where I don't really feel there's a time and a place is this, well, it shouldn't be this way. Because then you're just rejecting reality and you're closing yourself off to listening to what can I do in this moment? Or if it just requires being, then that's doing something too. Or taking action on something that's immediate and needs your attention. But there's no negotiating with life. Well, this isn't, this shouldn't be happening right now. And I think that's where a lot of our suffering comes in is, well, it shouldn't be this way. And here's why. And then we can get trapped in that thinking. Yeah. And we're missing the opportunity to act and ease suffering or to listen and to understand the bigger picture or the course of action eventually. Rejecting reality is not really an option. I love that. You can act or you can listen. That That's so profound, act or listen, and then tying it back to masculine and feminine. It's just something that I was reflecting on after that incident yeah, it's with so the cat. True. Mm -hmm. it's, that required action, but mm -hmm. life, I think, People can also get caught up in action Definitely. where it's we're just acting and we get swept up in going through the motions so that we never take the time to pause and listen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and get direct guidance for ourselves. We're just taking in other people's what we should be doing and that and then that gets us into sticky situations too. So mm -hmm. it's just something that popped into my mind as a realization after that incident that felt relevant to share right now, talking about everything we're talking about. Yeah. No, I love it. Act or listen. Those are really your options. Otherwise, you're just rejecting reality. And that's where the suffering comes in is when you want it to be different. And right. How it actually is. Oh, yeah. so good. Yeah, I, I just feel that was just such a nice little bookend to this yeah. lovely conversation. And I mean, I always love talking to you. It's so generative and exploratory, and I feel like I can just go anywhere with you. And it's funny because I wanted to talk about what's alive for you and this book that you were reading. And um, I feel like we got to touch on that, but I, not in a forceful way at all. We got to talk about all the creative things, and it was just so fun. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, I feel we got to it. In a roundabout, yeah. very feminine way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> exactly. The most Wait. natural way. Love it. Thanks so much for listening. 
Lastly, I want to give a special shout out to Jason and Michael Lakis, as well as Chris Humphreys for putting together that fun podcast jingle at the beginning of the episode. They are part of an awesome funk band in San Diego called Moans. That's M-O-A-N-S. And you all should check them out. Until next time. Bye. Bye.